welcome back to What China Wants with me, Sam Olsen, and as always, Stuart Patterson. And today we have got some very exciting news. So for a number of years now, we've been running What China Wants newsletter and in podcast form. And we are now launching today a mothership, so to speak, for What China Wants, which was going to be called the Even Star Institute, which is a non-partisan, not-for-profit think tank focused on measuring and understanding the evolving nature of national influence in the 21st century. What does that mean? Well, the first thing we're looking at in relevance to what China wants is we're looking at Chinese influence across the world. And to do so, we've developed a very detailed methodology using quantitative and qualitative data, tens and tens of thousands of quantitative data points and looking at interviews with people from around the world to help us to put the qualitative side in as well. And Stuart and I have been working hard on this for a while now, uh, along with the rest of the team from Evenstar. And today um, we're going to be talking about the first piece of research that the Evenstar Institute is launching. To talk about it, Stuart is going to be interviewing myself and our colleague, William Matthews, who is our director of research, uh, about exactly what is in this new paper. So, Stuart, back to you. Thank you, Sam, and welcome, William. So, William is a fluent Mandarin speaker and a specialist in Chinese comparative social science and international relations. Uh, he has 10 years' experience researching and teaching on China, drawing on a range of disciplines, including political science, history, and anthropology. Before joining the Evenstar Centre, William was an academic at uh, the London School of Economics, and he received his PhD from the University of College London. So, William, uh, well, congratulations on, on this uh, new piece of research. It's entitled An Overlooked Risk, an examination of China's hidden influences on the UK's national security supply chain. So, William, for, for those who perhaps don't follow issues of national security closely. Uh, perhaps we could just kick off by asking you, how exactly do you define the national security supply chain? And, and in layman's terms, what does that actually mean to people? Sure. Our, our whole sort of methodological approach has taken quite a, a broad approach to national security. And we've gone into this sort of through the lens that national security is not just about bombs and bullets. It's about much more than just purely defensive um, capacity and def defence supply chains. So our approach is to understand national security fundamentally in terms of a country's ability to act autonomously uh, without having to align itself with the influence of other actors. And so we look at this not only in terms of defensive capacity, but also aspects like human security. Um, so the ability of a country to provide for its people in terms of food, health, environment, and so on of economic prosperity uh, and of, of government function. And in our view, compromising a country's autonomy over any of these areas would constitute uh, a threat to national security. So that's the lens with which we've then gone on to look at what we're calling the national security supply chain in this research. So we don't just mean the defence supply chain here. We're looking at anywhere in the, the global supply chain feeding into UK national security that could represent a vulnerability to any of those core areas. That, that, that's fascinating, uh, William. And in the report, you talk a little bit about the various 
domains or, or sectors, as you call them, in which China can create influence. And you also have the enablers of influence. Could you just briefly explain what you mean by that and, and talk us through the sort of process by which the influence is built? Sure. So we've looked at this using a model which is designed to trace the kind of the causal chain of influence building. And we do this across different sectors, all of which constitute, if you like, a domain of of a country's kind of key activities. So these are things like defence and security, politics and governance, um, economics and finance and so on. And essentially, we look at influence. So for example, the influence of China in another country would be the degree to which China is able to sort of dominate one of those sectors in a way that constitutes some kind of constraint on the autonomy of that country to act. And when we're looking at enablers of influence, this is the sort of the specific means by which that influence is built up. So that could be, for example, through things like diplomatic means, it could be through ownership of key companies or stakes in key companies. In the case of China, it could also be through things like the activity of the United Front Working Group as a means of building up influence on on the ground. And then we look at these, again, through that ultimate lens of national security as a potential target. Brilliant, William. Well, I'm, I'm sure we could probably do a podcast on each and every one of the enablers and each and every one of the domains, but, but not now. So uh, I'd just like to move on and, and Sam, just ask you, so why do you say China is a risk to our, our national security supply chain? Well, Stuart, if you go back to the uh, early days of what China wants, we've always been very centrist in our approach. We're all Sinophiles, but we also recognise that China, uh, the Communist Party, does want to change the world order, and that might not be to the benefit of the UK and its Western allies. And so this is always the lens through which we look at things. And I think that with regard to the UK's national supply chain, there are vulnerabilities. For a start... 30% 30% or so of the world's manufacturing is in China, and not just directly uh, impactful of the UK, but so many of the components, raw materials, etc., that we get from third countries comes from China as well. Uh, and uh, one of the examples that we give is looking at British military uniforms, where many of them are made in Cambodia, and we show that two-thirds of the inputs into Cambodia's garment industry come from China itself. So China could literally turn off Cambodia's exports of garments in one day. And that would be a problem for us if we were waiting for, for uniforms. But the, well, presumably that's not the most serious of the threats, is it, Sam? No, it's not. But it's just an indication of, of how one can imagine that threats materialising from China, putting pressure not only directly on withholding things from the UK, but also indirectly from the UK as well. And the thing is, is that China does have a lot of form in using trade and its control over aspects of the supply chain as a weapon to achieve its strategic goals. So many examples, whether it's imports of salmon and cattle from Norway because they were angry about the award of the uh, Nobel Prize to Liu Xiaobo, or whether it was banning bananas from the Philippines over an argument about the South China Sea, or rare earth materials being exported to Japan in 2010 because they didn't like what Japan had done about a fishing incident. 
there are many, many examples of where China has used that. And I think that it's, it's incumbent upon us to prepare for a situation where China does want to achieve strategic goals with the UK, where it uses that demand to force Britain to acquiesce on things by withholding either directly or forcing other people to indirectly uh, withhold things from the UK national supply chain. A really good potential example is something we talk about in the paper, which is that there are 800,000 people in the UK who have jobs related to the motor industry. If China decided to cut off parts, many of which are made in China, let alone all the semiconductors that are made in Taiwan that could be cut off by Chinese action against Taiwan, then the impact on the UK would be very severe indeed, not only economically because of of slow production, but also socially because so many of those people would potentially lose their jobs or at least see a downturn in in the working week, which would have an impact on their families. So um, as William says, the lens of national security has to be looked much broader than just bombs and bullets. And to that degree, we've created this paper where we look at the potential risk directly and indirectly from China. Yeah, so it's interesting you mentioned rare earths because, of course, you know, we've just had the Section 232 report in the United States into their dependency on permanent magnets and, you know, which is a crucial part of of the defence supply chain. And uh, I'm quite sure that we're at least as dependent, if not more so, than the United States on China for those. But I suppose, William, you know, a lot of the report is about the indirect risks from China. So, you know, perhaps some of the the more direct risks and routes of influence, such as Confucius Institutes, for example, and, and, you know, the threat that Huawei posed potentially and and hike vision with their surveillance equipment. You know, these are sort of relatively direct risks in the realms of technology and media uh, and what have you. But perhaps you can elaborate a bit more on the indirect risks perhaps stemming from the enormous influence that China has created in third countries. Sure. So one of the key the key points of this research is is precisely that that indirect risk or indirect exposure to China is as significant an issue as those kind of direct exposure that you mentioned. Now indirect risk can take a few different forms. It could be the knock-on effects to a country further along the supply chain, so something like the example Sam mentioned about uniform manufacturers in Cambodia relying on Chinese uh, inputs, but it can also be the result of China executing influence over intermediary countries or suppliers where it's established influence. Again, we have precedent um, for China doing this. For example, in 2021, after Lithuania uh, opened a Taiwan representative office, China attempted to use direct targeting against Lithuania, which had little effect. But what China then did was target firms which themselves sourced products from Lithuania, an example being Continental, German automotive manufacturer. Um, Their products were prevented from clearing customs in China. And and this kind of action ultimately led to increased political pressure on Lithuania from Germany. So what we've got there is an example of China using its influence over a third country to pressure another country. Now, what we found looking at our regional case study of Southeast Asia is that in this region, this is a region crucial to the UK's supply chains, it's also a region where China has a very high degree of influence. And we find that there's a particular risk in terms of countries from which the UK imports 
high volumes of goods and components and so on. Vietnam and Thailand are good examples. Now, these have relatively a moderate degree of Chinese influence compared to a country like Cambodia. But nonetheless, that moderate influence combined with that volume of imports to the UK constitutes a high level of indirect exposure to Chinese influence. And this is a level of influence which has increased significantly over the last 10 years. Uh, And we should, I think, expect these kind of, you know, as China has shown willingness to use indirect methods to impact supply chains, we should be prepared in the event of any kind of downturn in relations with China or something like this to see similar targeting of UK supply chains going through regions with high levels of Chinese influence like Southeast Asia. So, so Sam, I mean, a lot of our listeners will have heard of and be familiar with uh, the Belt and Road Initiative. And, you know, we've recently had this situation where there's been a sort of a healthy, rigorous debate in Germany about the Chinese acquisition of a, of a stake in the port of Hamburg. You know, some years ago now, the Chinese took over the port of Piraeus, which is obviously a fairly iconic Greek economic asset, as it were. China is the biggest trading nation in the world. It spends a lot of money on, on, on logistics, on shipping. It has huge capacity in shipbuilding. How important do you think the global footprint of China's logistics companies is as a vehicle, a channel of, of influence? And, and would you worry that this it enables them to disrupt global supply chains in a, in a significant fashion? First of all, it's important to note that there is very strong historical precedent for a country dominating trade, dominating logistics, to have a a cutting and winning edge in war. And the UK being a prime example of that uh, in the First and Second World Wars with its dominance of the world maritime fleets and its ability to shift products, food, etc., munitions around the world, uh, which the Germans and the Japanese simply couldn't match. And so for normal peacetime, there is absolutely no problem with China being able to have a a dominance over global trade and to be able to have that strong position in the logistics industry. But if and when we get to conflict uh, with China in whatever guise, whether it's kinetic or more economic sanctions or whatever, in other words, if something uh, in the relationship strongly deteriorates, then we can expect China to do what uh, we did, what other countries in the past have done with the logistics control, and to use that to their own advantage. There are a few things you mentioned there about sort of China only ports. Well, they now own 93 ports in 40 or 50 so countries and have one of the world's largest shipping container companies, Costco. But perhaps more importantly, they're increasingly using their control of ports and their exposure to the global logistics industry to put their own digital infrastructure in. And the most prominent of that is a system called Logging, which is actually a really good idea in many ways, because it brings together lots and lots of different aspects of logistics software into one closed system, which makes things far more effective, far more efficient. And you can ship something from A to Z through different ports, different uh, lines, and uh, make it much easier to track where it's going. Uh, The problem is, is that for the West, that system logic is is owned and run by the Chinese, which means that the Chinese not only have 
access to understanding where all supplies for the West are going, whether that's uniforms or whether it's bombs, bullets, or whether it's much more prosaic things like, for example, batteries, etc., which are also needed for the UK's and Western supply chains. It can see where they're going, but also if it's feeling mischievous, can actually divert those shipments. And it gives China a huge amount of control over what can and is shipped around the world. So I think that is an important aspect to look at with regard to the Chinese control over the UK's national supply chain and one that really hasn't been spoken about much. Okay, so so William, clearly, yeah, logistics are a threat. Our supply chains are, are, are intertwined with China. So, so what's the solution? I mean, there's onshoring and friendshoring are the sort of buzzwords of the moment in terms of building supply chain resilience. Uh, perhaps it's ironic to be talking about friendshoring, where, when at the moment I think the UK are waiting for a delivery of a particular type of press that we require at Aldermaston from Belgium, and the export's been blocked by the Green Party in Belgium, but presumably that's a surmountable problem. Are onshoring and friendshoring the answer? Because clearly autarky uh, would be very expensive and, and a lot of these components that we depend upon in the UK, we simply don't have the scale of demand to do everything ourselves. Sure. So onshoring and friendshoring are solutions, but they're solutions with significant challenges, simply because of the degree of exposure of supply chains to China directly and indirectly. good example of this would be Apple. Major company produces 90% of its products in China. It's estimated it would need at least eight years to move just 10% of that capacity out of China. And it's not only under direct exposure through, through that manufacturing, but also uh, if we look at its suppliers, 150 out of 180 of its suppliers continue to have operations in China. So there's also that huge degree of indirect exposure. So in thinking about onshoring and friendshoring, the UK government and companies need to be thinking about indirect exposure as a major concern. You know, where do alternative suppliers source their raw materials? Where are these located? What is China's influence like in those alternative locations? As part of this report, Evenstar, we researched this in relation to um, technology and manufacturing companies, and we drew sort of two main conclusions from this. The first one is that a key challenge is that there are relatively few alternatives to Chinese suppliers uh, in Western or Western-friendly countries for a lot of advanced components. And the second challenge is that when those alternatives do exist, their production capacity is far lower than that of Chinese competitors, typically. So this presents significant issues as companies are attempting to shift their supply chains. And for instance, one, one company we looked at had seen a huge upsurge in demand as a result of these these processes, but while it's able to procure 97% of its components, there's 3% that are in short supply because of supply chain issues, but those 3% are actually essential. So it creates a, a bottleneck on production output. So a lot of this is also about what are the particular chains and links in those supply chains? How can these be mapped and that step of getting that thorough knowledge of direct and indirect exposure at all stages is crucial to making onshoring and friendshoring a successful solution. So, so, Sam, maybe I can just come back to you finally. I suppose two questions. So what are your ultimate conclusions from this report? And secondly, where can our listeners expect this research to go in the future? And, and what capabilities 
does the Even Star Institute have uh, that might be of use to them? Okay, so the most important conclusion is that, like it or not, Rishi Sunak, the British Prime Minister, has announced in, in that speech he gave um, recently that uh, the golden era with China is over. And actually, we need to be more pragmatic and understanding and dealing with a competitor, a strategic competitor. In other words, that is what we need to do with China. And that means that we have to be more cognizant of the risk that China poses to our supply chain. And that is not just about a narrow focus on, on the specifics around warfighting ability, but a much broader national security definition that we've described. And that is not just about stopping exposure, but as William pointed out, is about building up the capacity for the UK to bring the production abilities back on shore, not only to our shores, but also to, to friends' shores, and to make sure that we have a much more robust supply chain. And so I suppose the, the purpose of this, of this paper is to really kickstart the discussion at government and private sector levels to say, what can we all do together to make the UK national security supply chain more resilient and more fit for purpose, considering the changing relationship with China. And I think in terms of more, more research, well, uh, our plans are very simple to focus on the China Influence Index as one programme and macro supply chain risk as a second programme. And obviously this paper brings those two things together. But uh, the next paper will be around China's influence in Southeast Asia, uh, which uh, we hopefully will be launching around Chinese New Year's time. And that obviously brings together some of the issues we just mentioned about supply chain, considering how important Southeast Asia is to the UK from uh, a variety of different reasons. But we're very excited to see what we can do with the Evenstar Institute. Um, we're looking at influence in the uh, in the 21st century. And it's not just about China, just to be clear. We're looking at other countries as well. And more of that to be released soon. Uh, Sam and William, thank you very much indeed. And we look forward to hearing from you again on what China wants in due course. Thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye.